Or yuck, the final exam is coming up in a month, but that'll be one month from Monday. In the meantime, we have a few things due. Uh, homework 6 is due today or by 6 o'clock tomorrow morning in the Dropbox on D2L. Uh, the iTunes quiz will be up, is, is in there now, will be available starting on Monday, so you can take that any time this next week. It'll cover the pictures from October 5th through today. So even if you take it later in the week, it won't cover any of those other pictures. The last ones will be for that last uh, iTunes quiz, which will be in mid-December. Well, early mid-December, because by mid-mid-December we're done. But it'll be the final exam week, essentially. That same, it'll be that's available at the same time, amount of time, the final exam. And then quiz six on chapters 13 and 14 will be the end of next week. And the couple of extra credit assignment opportunities that I gave you, the exam replacement will be due the 18th of November. And the other extra credit assignment on my podcast on the history of astronomy is due on the 25th of November. So you have those coming up and sandwiched in between is the third article review. So don't, don't forget about that as well. As with the other two, you're welcome to use the list of uh, articles that I gave you. So as long as you're selecting a different article, you can use you could have used three of those articles if you want to use the ones that I put up on, on D2L for you. So coming up quick, we're getting up towards the end of November. And then next week, coming up shortly after that, is the solar observations. And I'll be going over that next Friday. That will be our lab work that we're doing. Yes? I have a question about the exam replacement. Yes? Are we, is that like a, we turn it in that day and we never see it again? Or is that like a you show the whole class? It's a, it's a you turn it in. And I will look at it. You don't have to show the whole class. If you really want to show the whole class something, I will be happy to allow you to. But you will see it again. I do not keep them. I have a couple in my office that students have not wanted back or said go ahead and keep. I have a few things. But if you want it back, you'll get it back within a, probably within a week or so. So. Homework 7? Probably right around the end of November. Probably around, around this time as well. I'll let you know. I'll give you, I'll give you the homework 7 next um, on Monday and I'll let you know. I'm trying to adjust the dates. You don't have five things to do at once. Well, a couple quizzes in this case, but try to make sure you don't have too many things. Too many things do at once. Other questions? No? No? All right. And then homework eight will be due the last, probably the last day of class, so it'll be due then. Uh, picture of the day for today, solar eclipse from last Sunday. Now here, here's when you see a real total solar eclipse. Had to travel a little bit, you had to go out to Uganda over in Africa where the actual path of totality occurred. This wasn't one of the best solar eclipses, I mean it's a beautiful image, but it was not a very long lasting solar eclipse. And that's because the moon and the sun were almost exactly the same size. And that means there was only a very short period of time when the moon was able to completely block out the sun. In this case, at maximum, it lasted about 20 seconds. So complete darkness lasted about 20 seconds, not near as long as some of the real long eclipses, which might last 8, 10 minutes, when the moon is apparently much larger in the sky. So at this point, the Sun was the Earth and the Sun were close enough and the Moon was far enough away that they, this Earth, Moon and Sun came out almost exactly the same size. But what you can see is you can see a lot of the solar activity around the edges here. You can actually see some of the prominences right around the edge because you're only just barely blocking out the disk of the Sun. You're really seeing a lot of that 
activity. So you can see a lot of those solar prominences, little loops up here, over here, a little bit of material up over here that you'll be able to see that you normally would not be able to see during an eclipse. Typically an eclipse, if the moon was a little bit bigger, it would actually block all of that out too and you'd only be seeing even the further out areas of the sun. So because this was such a close one, uh, that the close matched in size, you're able to get, even though you had a very short time to get the images, you were able to get some more detail of the surface of the sun. And early on, this was really the only way you could study that part of the sun, the outer atmosphere of the sun, the chromosphere and the corona, was by waiting for an eclipse. That was the only time you could see it. They're there all the time. You can walk out right now. Yeah, the, the corona's there. You can look all you want. You're not going to see it. Sun's just way too bright. Sun is overwhelming every, everything else. I mean, just as the stars are all out right now, but sun's overwhelming all their, all their brightness. So when you can block out that sun, you can actually see some of the detail around it, around it there. So that was the eclipse that we had here Sunday morning. Uh, as the sun was rising, it was finishing up. But further off to the east over in Africa, they actually got to see the total, total solar eclipse, which we have to wait four more years for, 2017. As I recall, it's the next, next good one that will occur in the U.S. Question? The 2017? Yeah, the 2017 one goes from like uh, Seattle area down through the Carolinas and Georgia. So if you're here in Harrisburg, you're going to see a partial eclipse. You're going to have to travel to like St. Louis or you know somewhere. You have to find out exactly the path that you have to travel if you want to see the total. You will be able to see a partial eclipse from pretty much anywhere in the in the U.S. I don't know. I don't know the percentage. Um, I'd have I'd have to check it. We'd have to pull it up pull it up on uh, Starry Night or something to see exactly what the percentage is going to that's going to be blocked would be. But it's going to be it's it'll be decent. But the one coming in 2024 will be even better. That'll be like an 80 or 90 percent blocked from our location. You go a little further north, it'll be it'll be complete. So we got a couple coming up there, but you got to wait. You know, about a uh, four four or ten years in order to get to them. Other questions? Have there been any photographs taken of a solar flare erupting on the sun during the eclipse? I'm sure, I'm sure there have. The flares are common enough. Uh, usually what astronomers do now is they're able to artificially create an eclipse. So you can block out the sun and you can watch it in much more detail. But I'm sure that there must have been eclipses. We've known about flares before, so they would have been, you would have been able to happen to catch one that occurred, that happened to occur during an eclipse. I'm not aware off the top of my head of any specific pictures of showing one. But I see no reason why it wouldn't have been with all the eclipses that have been photographed for you know, a couple, what, hundred and some years now since photography has been developed. Uh, been a, been, would have, certainly would have had, likely had something. Um, it would look like, I mean, it wouldn't look that much more than this, except that you'd have material stretching further out. You'd have material going much further out than just these little, the little prominences that you see. A flare is much like a prominence, just much more energy, so it expands a lot further out away from the sun. So you'd be able to see a little bit further. It wouldn't be anything, uh, it wouldn't be anything that tremendous, you'd, but you'd be able to see it much bigger than one of these, one of these prominences. Anything else? No, no. All right. We're ready to look at uh, finish up the black holes here.
Here we were. Uh, where were we? We were looking at this one last time. There we go. All right, we were looking at escaping from a black hole. If you get inside the event horizon, you're out of luck. There's nothing you can do if you get in this close. The escape velocity at the event horizon is the speed of light. If you got in further than that, the escape velocity gets higher and higher and higher. So eventually it becomes two and three and four times the speed of light. So even if you could travel at the speed of light or a little bit faster, once you get far enough in, the escape velocity is still hi higher than you can possibly travel. And it gets higher and higher as you get down towards that uh, singularity, that point at the center where all the mass has been concentrated. But what we were looking at here is sending signals away. So if we send, instead of sending somebody into the black hole and letting them get ripped apart, send a robotic probe in the black hole and let it get ripped apart. And send, as it sends signals out, if it's sending you know, a visible light signal to us, what we're going to see as it gets closer and closer, that signal is going to get shifted. That, that, that radiation, those li that light that's leaving it, is going to lose energy as it tries to escape from the black hole. So light can't lose energy, at least not in a vacuum, by slowing down. So it loses it by changing its wavelength, getting a much longer wavelength and therefore lower energy. So it transforms from visible light to infrared light. And that visible light signal that it's sending from close to the black hole may be received as a radio signal because it's been redshifted so much. If you were sending x-rays, if x-rays are being produced close to the black hole, we might actually see them as visible light. So that's the way the energy, that's the way the photons lose their energy. They can't slow down. As long as you're traveling in a vacuum, everything, ha all light has to travel at the speed of light. So in order to lose energy, the only thing they can do is keep going at the same speed, but their wavelength gets stretched out as they try to escape from the black hole. If you get within the black hole, within that event horizon, there's nothing you can do. You can send that uh, photon out and it would have been infinitely stretched to nothing before it got out, so there would be no signal. No signal would ever get out of that black hole to reach us further, further out. Alright, so that was traveling near a black hole. Now what's inside a black hole? Who knows? There's no way to tell what is inside a black hole or what a black hole is made of. So. I can't tell you finding this black hole here that we detect out in space, whether it's made up of hydrogen, you know, hydrogen from stars that was collapsed down together. Was it made up of helium, carbon, um, iron? Is, was it a big, you know, was it solar masses worth of peanut butter that got smushed down that far? All that knowledge is lost. We don't know anything about the black hole except for its mass. We know that it has mass, but we have no, it has no chemical properties anymore. So could be made up of anything. You know, pick any element on there, pick any combination of the elements. It could be made up of, you could make a black hole of that if you compress the material down enough. But the only things we can know are about the black hole are its mass. So we can know how much ma mass is there, how much matter is in it. We can know its electrical charge. That doesn't get lost. So if you, send, if you took a black hole and send a lot of electrons into it, it would, it would have a negative charge to it. You could have a negatively charged black hole. Of course, a negatively charged black hole is going to do what with all the positive atoms in the universe? 
it's going to attract them. So most likely, black holes are pretty much going to be electrically neutral just because the electromagnetic force is so strong that if you get a strong charge on one, it's going to attract and neutralize itself pretty easily. But you could have that information is not lost. You lose what it's made up of, but you don't lose the electrical charge, whether it's positive or negatively charged, that material, that, that information stays. And the other thing you can know about it is its spin. You can actually measure it, the rotation of the black hole. But that's about it. We don't know anything else, so all of the other things that we've learned about, you know, in terms of spectra and everything else, we can't do that from the black hole. Once you get inside the black hole, there's only three things to know. So they may be complicated, but they're actually relatively simple objects in many ways, too. They only a few, only a few properties. Yes, sir? That thing you're talking about with the electrical charge, is that Hawking radiation? No. What, can you explain that to me? Because I never really... Explain Hawking radiation? I don't want to no. knock you off track. No. There's your black hole. There's the point at the center. Here's your event horizon. What happens out in space all the time is that you can create, for example, uh, you can start with nothing and you can create an electron and a positron. Let's use the little symbols for them. So an electron and anti-electron. They can be created out of nothing. Okay? And they immediately annihilate each other and they go back to nothing. So net, there nothing happened. But this is, this is quantum mechanics, so it's studying the, you know, the properties of the, of the small particles and how they work. You can, you can do that, and that happens all the time. But net, nothing happens, so there's no matter lost, no matter gained, nothing happens. If this happens close to the black hole, though, you have the possibility that one of those particles goes in and one escapes. That escape particle, ha that energy has to come from somewhere. So it ends up evaporating. Essentially, it's a particle. It's evaporating from the black hole. It takes forever for black holes to evaporate if they're big. The ones we're talking about, I think you mentioned the micro ones. With you, they mentioned the little micro ones. Uh, the big black holes. This could take trillions of years for them to evaporate. It will happen very slowly, but it takes a very long time. Um, a small black hole. It goes real quick. So the smaller the black hole, the quicker it will evaporate. So some of those can evaporate in you know, microseconds. They don't last very long at all. Most of the black holes, the kind that we're talking about right now for stars, the kinds that we'll talk about in the next couple chapters for galaxies, it happens and it can be measured, but it's not something that's going to evaporate. That black hole's not going to disappear in, even in astronomical timescales. So even when we start talking billions of years, they're still going to be around. As far as I know, that's still that's still what we think for evaporating of them. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Kepler's laws, yes. Uh, you could measure it if it's. You'd have to have something orbiting it. So if you find a black hole in a binary system, and you can measure the motion of that object around it, and then you can determine the mass of that whole system. I'm going to show you an example in just in just a couple of minutes. Have to be some astronomical object, something, something orbiting around it. Yeah. So, what we really don't know is what happens. I mean, the theories tell us that it collapses down to absolutely nothing. Does something else happen? You know, what happens? You crush the neutrons out of existence. What happens to the quarks that make up the neutrons? You know, what happens to whatever makes those up? If there's something else beyond them, you know, does something else stop? Does it eventually stop collapsing again? 
our, the our theories don't go that far yet. We're, we're, not, we're not to that stage to be able to understand any more, any more than this. So probably this is not what happens. It might not collapse down. And there's theories that it can collapse down to all sorts of other cer certain things that give you, you know, possibilities of time travel and you know, going through and coming out someplace else in the universe. That there's you know, wormholes and things that all come into this when you really study it in detail. But the, the thing is, we don't know. We don't know. We really have no clue what will happen. So until we really get better knowledge of what happens in these kinds of conditions, you know, we're not, we can't understand. We can't go in there. You know, we, have enough, we have a tough enough time experimenting in astronomy as it is. You can look at things, but you can't experiment. Here you can't even experiment. Well, you can. Let's get a big black hole. We can go inside there and conduct all the experiments we want and learn about it. We figured it out. How are we going to tell anybody? Unless there's a wormhole there to get you back out. And of course, then it might get you out, you know, two million years ago or two million years in the future. Get out two million years in the future and they, well, we already knew all that. <laughs> so, you know. But, you know, if that's what happens there. So. Question? Questions? No? No? All right. All right. Let's look. And this is sort of leads into what you're talking about. What is the existence? How do we, how do we know that black holes exist? By nature, they're not giving off any light, so we can't see them. But the best way to find star, uh, black holes of the type we're talking about right now is by looking for looking at stars. In this case, we're looking at um, I'll give you the, this is actually Cygnus X1. Which just means this is in the constellation of Cygnus, and it was the first X-ray source discovered in it. That's just the naming that's used, so use the constellation name there. And it's very close to this star, very relatively massive star, a B-type star, right? O, B, so it's one of the more massive stars. And what is found is that this star is not an X-ray source, but something close to it is. And if we zoom in on this box, there's the X-ray. There's an X-ray source that's visible when we look at this in the X-rays. That's about the center of this box, which is right about here which is well away from the star. So gives us an idea that there's something here that's not visible that's producing x-rays. How can a black hole produce x-rays? It, it takes everything, right? What can happen is as material comes into the black hole, so if you have a star here, a star way off over here someplace, material can, be, can come in to the black hole Right? Once it crosses in there, we get no evidence of it. It's gone. But it can also spiral into a disk around it. So it can actually orbit around that black hole and slowly decay into it. Imagine, you know, we're talking things that are kilometers away from this intense source of gravity. Imagine how much heating is going on, how hot this material gets. It gets heated up to extremely high temperatures. And this material is what will radiate X-rays, gamma rays, visible, even some visible light, depending on the exact uh, positioning of it. So you can actually see the material as it's going into the black hole, as it slowly spirals in, in what we call an accretion disk around it, where it's gathering the matter. So we can actually see that. Once that material crosses the event horizon, it's gone, we see nothing. So in this case, we're seeing X-rays probably from a disk of material around this, around this black hole that would otherwise be invisible. 
And you can also, as you watch that star, you can see it move. And when you see a star orbiting around nothing, you know, what's going on here? Why is this star orbiting around nothing? Right? So there's got to be something there. And we can actually make measurements of that. And let me see. Here's what we do. Cygnus X1 is one of the best candidates for a black hole. We know how massive the bigger, biggest star is. We can look at it. It's a B-type star. We can estimate its mass pretty accurately. And it's about 25 solar masses by comparing to other stars. If you use Kepler's law, you can't determine the exact mass of each individual object, but you can get the total mass. So it really tells you when we use the Earth going around the Sun to determine the mass, you're really determining the mass of the Earth and the Sun together. Well, compared to the Sun, the Earth has no mass. The Earth's nothing. So it doesn't really matter. When you're talking about things that are closer in mass, you have to take that into account. So really what you're measuring is the total mass of that system. And when you measure that, you watch the orbit of this partner. As, the t as, it's, orbiting around, as it's orbiting around, we can get its period. How long does it take to make one orbit? We can get its uh, average distance from whatever this other thing is. And we can determine, use Kepler's laws, and we get about 35 solar masses. So we have one star at 25 solar masses. We have the total system at 35 solar masses. We can subtract, right? What's left over? Take the 35, we, 35 that we measure has to be there. Take out the 25 we can see. Leaves us with 10 that's invisible. Now if you recall, a white dwarf can only be about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. Can't be a white dwarf star, even a very dark one. Neutron star, two, three times the mass of the sun. We're at 10, we're three, three, four times that. So not even close to being a neutron star, so it can't be that. You know, even one where the pulsar isn't pointing towards us, so we, could, we might not be able to see, the, see it pulsing. That only leaves us with a black hole. The other things that can tell us that it's very small, first of all, we're seeing some of this gas where this star is losing some of its material. So this large star is actually losing some of its material and streaming towards this unseen object. Again, probably a black hole. And the other thing that we see is we see variations in the brightness and in the X-ray intensity on extremely short time scales. When you see things varying in very, very short times, that tells us the object that's creating them has to be very small. If you have something like a gigantic galaxy that is 100,000 light years across, it can't get brighter in one day and then fainter the next. It takes it hundreds of thousands of years because it takes that much time for the light to travel across the entire galaxy. In terms of smaller things like stars, you can be talking you know, fractions of a second. But if you're getting variations that small, you know that everything has to be very, very close together. So a combination of all of this, first of all, the mass estimates, as we mentioned from Kepler's laws, we can estimate that and find out that this, whatever is unseen there, is 10 solar masses. So maybe it's three neutron stars in some sort of odd orbit around each other if you don't want to have a black hole there. Right? You get three, four neutron stars. How stable is that going to be over time period? And when they do coalesce, what are you going to get? Black hole, right? So there are ways to get around it, but eventually you're going to end up with something that you're putting all of this mass into such a small area that it has to be a black hole. A black hole is the only thing that will explain that. 
We see the material coming from the companion and we see these very short variations. We'll come back and look at those when we talk about galaxies because that will give us some evidence that there are black holes at the centers of galaxies as well when we see variations coming from a galaxy that are very, very fast. In fact, on the order of you know, days or even less than a day, we can see, start to see variations at the smallest scale. Black holes could coalesce together, but it would not be, you know, unlike neutron stars and getting a gamma ray burst perhaps as one of the options. Two black holes coalesce, not much is going to happen. You might see bursts from around outside them, but anything inside those event horizons is invisible to us. So what really happens there is not something we, we know. This is just sort of highlight, same image I showed you a minute or two ago, that's Cygnus X, X1. And that's the visible light image, there's the star that we see. There's the x-ray source which is at the center of this box, you know, somewhere off in here. There is a strong x-ray source and you can again, you can watch those orbiting each other. You can see in detail that material is flowing around and flowing from one to the other. So one of our best examples of a, a good black hole candidate. There are others. There's lots of others that we can now determine. We can make measurements to show, determine masses. And if you find anything with a mass greater than about three, you have a pretty good idea that that has to be a black hole. If we look towards the center of galaxies, it's even more. We can actually get what we call supermassive black holes. The black holes that we're talking about here are, you know, ten times the mass of the sun, five times the mass of the sun, maybe twenty times the mass of the sun. Big, but by comparison, when we start looking at galactic centers, here's where the mergers come in. Probably in the center of a galaxy, it started out in black holes. Eventually, it's so much material so close together, they slowly coalesce together. Now you have black holes that can be a million solar masses. So much, much bigger. And we see those at the center of most galaxies. In fact, our galaxy has one that's about three or four million solar masses actually relatively small by galactic standards. We'll see some that are even larger than that. But there is a black hole that, that massive at the center of our galaxy and when we finish, as we finish the next chapter, I'll show, you a, I'll show you some pictures, I'll show you a video clip that shows some of the orbits. You can look at orbits of stars very close to the galaxy, center of our galaxy and see how fast they're actually moving. So we'll start to see even more, even larger black holes coming up here. Lastly, um, how about black holes intermediate? These are some that have started to be, uh, they've discovered some of these intermediate black mass black holes. They're harder to account for and figure out you know, where they're coming from because we can explain the smaller black holes. That was a star that went hypernova, right? So whatever mass was left there, few solar masses, became a black hole. We can understand those. At the center of a galaxy, we can understand millions of solar masses. These are kind of intermediate. So is it something that occurs in a smaller cluster of stars where it didn't have the time to grow up to a bigger one, at least, or at least not yet? But they're sort of in between and they're one that astronomers are still researching, trying to better understand how we can get this. You can never get a star that massive. No star could form a black hole this size because you can get up to about 100 solar masses in a star, about as big as a star can possibly get. Uh, before it becomes completely unstable and how much of that material would have been expelled out into space before the black hole formed and, and in the supernova explosion. So what's left over would not be close to 100 solar masses. 
So as you get up to those, it's something that astronomers are still trying to understand. But there's a possible black hole here that's somewhere in that, in that mass range. So is it a multiple? You know, that's not just one or two black holes combining. That's, you know, if a black hole has 10 solar masses, you're combining somewhere between 10 and 100 black holes. So trying to get those combined to form a single black hole of this is something that astronomers are still trying to understand how that works. Is something we're still, we're still working on. Question. Well, the black hole is the tiny point at the center. If that's a hundred times the mass of the sun or a thousand times the mass of the sun, the black hole's event horizon might be, try to do this off the top of my head, but it might be, you know, a hundred kilometers, just giving you a rough estimate. So anything outside of that can, light can escape. Okay, so we can still see, and we're not looking in that close, so we're seeing all the material around it. Yeah, somewhere at the black hole, wherever that is, it's all blocked out. You couldn't see anything, but it's very, very small in size. So, we will come back to black holes again in the, in the next couple of chapters as well. So, they're not, we're not done with them yet. Well, let's finish up chapter 13, and we can get on to start 14 a little bit. Where are we? All right. So, uh, chapter 13, we really talked about the remnants that were left over. Uh, supernova can leave behind possibly a neutron star. Neutron star has the mass of the sun or more. And extremely dense, spins extremely quickly, and has very, very strong magnetic field. So we see them, the ones we actually can detect easily, we see them as pulsars. When that beam, that magnetic field beam, points towards us, it sends out a big, a big burst of particles, and we can detect that as a burst of energy coming from this star. Otherwise, they'd be very hard to find. They're tiny, very, very faint, almost impossible to see otherwise. Yes, I showed you an example of one that we can see, but very, very, dif very difficult to actually find. Neutron stars, we may, uh, if, if they're in a binary system, they may become an X-ray burster, sort of the neutron star equivalent of a nova. Right? You catch material on the neutron star, build up some uh, material on that, it bursts and gives off a lot of energy, but instead of visible light, as we saw on the surface of a white dwarf, you'll actually get uh, x-rays, x-rays bursting outward, outward. It can also cause that, new, that neutron star to spin up, and instead of spinning like a normal pulsar a couple times a second, question or? Yeah, go ahead. No. Okay. Instead of spinning a couple times a second, it might be spinning, you know, hundreds of times a second. So right at the edge of its limit where even a neutron star would tear itself apart. We also looked at gamma ray bursts. The two possibilities given, possibly a neutron star is colliding together, and maybe a black hole would be forming, but in that explosion that forms it, perhaps you get a burst of gamma rays, or a hypernova event. Hypernova, as you recall, was that really big star exploding, perhaps, right? It started, the core collapsed, tried to expand outward, and there was just too much material. That material slowed down. Even that immense explosion, there was so much material surrounding it that it sort of buffered out that explosion. You couldn't see, you couldn't see it. That causes the material to start collapsing again, forms a black hole, material starts spiraling into it, and that reignites the energy and rebursts the the supernova reignites the supernova, creating a hypernova, but would leave a black hole behind in its wake. Would hypernova only occur, say, with, lower, with a node? 
with the very most massive stars. Yeah, the real big stars. Probably this is what we think because you'd have so much material around it. Any star you have too much material around it that that explosion, you know, you've got to push all that material. That takes a lot of energy. Even though you're creating a lot, it takes a lot of energy to push those outer layers out. So it would probably be the most massive stars that would do that. Yep. All right. So what do we have left behind if we've got at least three solar masses? We end up with a black hole there. How do we describe a black hole? It's a warping of space-time. And we need to use general relativity to try to be able to explain it. Not completely. We've, the idea of a black hole actually predates Einstein by hundreds of years. You know, there was the thought, you know, we knew escape velocities. What happens if an escape velocity got greater than, a, than the speed of light? So the idea and the concept actually went back a little bit further. But to really, or any understanding that we have now really comes from general relativity. If you get within the event horizon, nothing can escape. The only way to escape if you're inside the event horizon is to travel faster than light. The closer you get to that singularity, that point at the center, the faster you'd have to travel. So as you get closer, it's going to become twice the speed of light, and five times, and ten times, and twenty times the speed of light. So you can't get in close enough. I mean, the closer in you get, the harder it is to actually be able to escape from it. I also gave you the term the Schwarzschild radius which is just the distance from that singularity, that's the point at the center, to the event horizon. And that defines the size of a black hole because it doesn't have any size otherwise. It's a point. So how do you determine how big it is? Well, it's the point at which we can't know anything, where the escape velocity is equal to the speed of light. And then finally, what do we see? How do we see a black hole? We see um, time dilation as material is coming into it. We see gravitational redshifts as material is spiraling into that black hole. Likely that material coming in and here would be heated up to extremely high temperatures, you know, many millions of degrees, and would give us out, give out x-rays. So you'll be able to see x-ray sources. That's how we found Cygnus X1, strong x-ray source, with nothing there. You know, there are other strong x-ray sources, but there might be a galaxy there or something that might be emitting those x-rays. This one, there's nothing there. So it's a very good, strong black hole candidate, and Cygnus X1 is one of the best that we have. So as the material spirals in, it, gives, it can give off a lot of x-rays, and that's what we're really using to track down these uh, black holes that are uh, solar mass size, the mass of the sun or a little larger. Question 13? Fun one. This one gets your mind going a little bit. Actually, so does the next to last chapter when you start talking about the universe and the shape of the universe and the origin of the universe and all that stuff. That usually gets you, gets you going too. But you've got, you got another couple of weeks before we get there. Probably could if it's the lar largest. Remember, that's the largest known star in terms of size, not in terms of mass. And I think it's only... 10, 15 times the mass of the sun. So it's not a very massive star. It's just a very big. It might be more likely. It might even be in the process of becoming a planetary nebula. Those layers might be coming out. I don't know. I'm just putting something off the top of my head there. But it's not a, super, not a horribly massive star. It's not like 100 solar masses. Very big in terms of size, how big it is, but not in terms of mass. I have a question. Yeah. I can't let it go. Go ahead. What are your ideas about the system with a neutron star with planets orbiting it? I think it's actually on the homework. I didn't do that one yet, but yeah. I mean, 
A neutron star is created by a supernova. Neutron star is com destroy everything. Yes. Locally, so what, what do you think? One of the thoughts I've heard on it is that perhaps material it was not they were not planets that survived the explosion. They've coalesced since then from the material that was left behind. That makes a little more sense to me because if, a, if the sun were to go supernova, it couldn't. But if it were to, it would wipe out everything here. So I, I see more likely that perhaps the material that was left, I mean, not all of it gets expelled out. There'd still be some material around. And that could later coalesce into, into planets. I've heard that as an example. And that's probably a best way to try to explain that. But those were some of the first planets that were discovered outside of our solar system it's like they're orbiting a they're orbiting a pulsar or a neutron star how you know how could they possibly survive the supernova explosions and i've answered the question for you right <laughs> if everybody remembered and wrote it down now you've got a possible answer all right well we're going to jump out a little bit further now uh, we've gone through the planets we've gone through the stars now we're going to jump out to the galaxies for the next couple next couple of weeks and look at groupings of stars. So how the stars actually coalesce together in something like this in terms of a uh, galaxy. This is one example of a spiral galaxy like our own. Uh, central bulge area and spiral arms coming out of it, just spiraling out from the center and giving it to this very beautiful, beautiful image that we see. Um, that's one type of galaxy. That's ours. That's the one we're going to be talking about in chapter 14. In chapter 15, we'll look at some of the other types of galaxies that form. Not every galaxy looks like this. Spiral galaxies are the prettiest, so we get to be in one of the pretty galaxies. But there's lots of other galaxies, lots of other types of galaxies that form as well. Uh, let's see. So let's look at what we're going to see here. Um, really, we're talking about our galaxy and making measurements of it. That's what we're going to try to look at today. And then probably on Monday, we'll come back and look at the whole structure of the galaxy. So what are the different parts of it that we see? It's not just a single uh, chunk. It's all these different stars together, but they come in a very distinct pattern. You see that central bulge all the time. You see a central area. You see spiral arms. In a galaxy like ours, you always see spiral arms. And we see a big halo around it, a halo of material around it. So there's different parts of the structure. And trying to understand those will help us to understand perhaps how the Milky Way formed in the first place. So how do we form a big galaxy, a big galaxy like that? The better part, the more interesting part to try to understand is where do the spiral arms come from? And honestly, we don't know. May as well tell you right away. I'll, I'll ruin the surprise there, but I'm not going to be able to tell you where spiral arms come from. We have some pretty good ideas of how they, uh, how they maintain once they form, but where they come from in the first place. There's some ideas, but there's nothing that's really completely understood as to how, why some galaxies have, you know, why do some galaxies have spiral arms and others not? We'll see some that do not, do not as well. We'll be able to measure the mass of our Milky Way galaxy. That causes some problems that we'll be looking at in this chapter and the next because the mass of our Milky Way galaxy is a lot more than what we see. Lead into a discussion of what's called dark matter. So a lot of matter in the universe, in fact, the vast majority of the matter in the universe is invisible. The stuff that we see, you know, the, the stuff that's made up, makes up the stars that we see, and the nebulae that we see, and our planet, and the galaxies, and everything that we see, see is about 3 or 4% of the measured mass of the universe. Most of the rest of it is completely invisible to us. So we can measure it gravitationally, 
But we don't have a complete understanding of what is all this dark matter, this material that we cannot see. And then we'll finish up, we'll go in and look at the center of our galaxy and start to talk about the black hole, black hole that exists at the center, center there. So we've got a little bit of time, at least we can get started on this. Here's our galaxy. There's a sketch of it and there's a picture of it. So we're looking at our bottom one, we're looking at our galaxy from inside. Looks a lot like a spiral galaxy, doesn't it? Not at all, right? Doesn't look anything like a spiral galaxy because we're stuck inside it. What does Blocker Hall look like? Can't leave this room. What does Blocker Hall look like? You know, it's you can't really tell. You can't tell from within something. If you get outside and you can go out and you know get up in a helicopter and look down, well, you could sketch out the shape of the hall real, real nice. But from inside, you might have a few windows to look in so we can get some bits and pieces that we can see and map out some of our galaxy. But we really don't have a good view of it because we're stuck inside it. So we can't really know the idea, what our galaxy is like directly, at least looking at it visibly. Now there are ways to map out some of the gas in our galaxy and we can actually now map out the spiral arms uh, using things like radio waves to penetrate through the dust and be able to try to map them out. But it's still, it's indirect methods, nothing direct to see exactly what our galaxy looks like. 21 centimeter, yes, because that maps out all the hydrogens. We can map out where all the hydrogen is in the galaxy, which is everything in the galaxy because you can ignore all the little, all the carbon and the oxygen and the stuff that we need. You know, that's the little tiny, little tiny leftovers in it. But this is about where we are. There's our Earth, not even close to being to scale. You know, um, molecular size would probably be a little more accurate to scale on that. So Earth way off to scale there. But what we notice is a couple different things. When we look in different directions, if we look this direction or this direction, we're not going to see very many stars. If we look in this direction, the, yellow, the white arrow, if we look in this direction, the bluer arrow, we're going to see a lot more stars because our galaxy is a flattened disk. So that's what we're seeing here when we look out at the Milky Way. And if you've had a chance to go out and look at the night sky, not from Harrisburg, you know, get out where it's really, where it's really dark, you can actually see the Milky Way stretching across the sky. And that's actually the disk of our galaxy. You're looking, when you're looking towards that Milky Way, you're looking at this part of our galaxy. You're trying to look towards, towards the center or away from the center where you're seeing a lot more stars in that disk. So we'll see different numbers of stars and that's one of the ways we first went about trying to determine the structure of our galaxy. Well, if we think about this hundreds of years ago, we didn't have 21 centimeter radiation. It existed, but we had no technology to, de to detect it a couple hundred years ago. So all we could do was visible light. So if you wanted to map out how big the, how big the galaxy was, well, you counted stars. How many stars are there in every direction in the sky? And you could then map out what our galaxy might look like. And, whoops, here's some other galaxies. I think I jumped one ahead there, but here's some other galaxies. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, but there's another, another spiral galaxy there. We see them in all different orientations. So we can see one where we're looking face down on it. We can see one where we're sort of at a tilt here. We can see one where it's almost edge on. That looks about the closest to our galaxy. Right? That looks like a little Milky Way. Right? Little tiny Milky Way in space. So that gives us sort of a hint that yes, our galaxy probably looks something like this. And that if we could look at it from, if we could zoom out and run out here and come and look down from this direction at our galaxy, you might see something like this. 
or in between, you might see something else. The thing is, the galaxies are there, so we can only see them at, all the, at whatever positioning they happen to be. We can't go travel those millions of light years needed to go see, well, what does that galaxy really look like if we looked at it edge on or a face on if it comes one or the other. We don't have that, that ability. Now measuring the Milky Way. Okay. So here's one of the earliest, earliest ones done by William Herschel. And what he did is just looked in all different directions and counted how many stars he could see. End up with this nice big blob and there's our galaxy. That's what our galaxy was thought to be like a couple hundred years ago. So you saw a lot more stars here. That's the disk of our galaxy. You have some idea that our galaxy is flattened. It's not a great big sphere. But not near, as ex ex not near an extent as what we really know it to be. This is about 3,000 parsecs. So we were three or 4,000 parsecs away from the edge of the galaxy there, relatively close to the center. You know, where do you want to put the center? Right in there someplace maybe, roughly. That's about the center of our galaxy. The sun was not all that far from the center of our galaxy. Now if we go back, you recall, let me go back two slides here. We weren't anywhere near the center of our galaxy. We're way over here, 8,000 parsecs from the edge of our galaxy from the center of our galaxy, let alone from the other edge. So what did Herschel do wrong? Nothing really. He did what he, he, did what he knew at the time. He counted the stars. But he, what, some things he didn't know about, some of the stuff that I've already talked to you about, is that there's a lot of gas and dust between us and the center of the galaxy. We can't see to the center of our galaxy. So if you just look out the stars there, all those stars are relatively close to us, you know, hundreds, thousands of light years away. They're not you know, what I say it was, 8,000 parsecs would be about 24,000 light years. You can't see that far. If you're looking towards the center of our galaxy, you can't see that distance. So he's only seeing the stars that he can. There's a few breaks here where there's less dust and he can see a little bit further and see more stars. But for the most part, the galaxy actually extends way off to the other side and we're only seeing that little portion of it. So that's what he was measuring. He didn't know it, but he was measuring only that little portion of the galaxy around us. So because there's so much gas and dust, especially towards the center, you don't get a very accurate measurement looking out in this direction. You get a horrible estimate if you're trying to look towards the center of our galaxy. And you don't do so bad if you're looking up or down. There's not as much gas and dust here. A lot quicker to get out of our galaxy, so there's a lot less gas and dust. So you get a pretty good estimate of how wide the galaxy is this way, how thick it is. But not very good here and absolutely horrible there, missing, you know, missing a very large fraction of its size. So it turns out we're nowhere near the center of our galaxy. In fact, we're way out towards the outskirts of the galaxy. But what Herschel's problem was was that he didn't know about gas and dust. It wasn't something that was understood yet. Now, question, yes, sorry. So, how big are galaxies? How big are galaxies? Yeah. Ours is about 100,000 light years across. And can you imagine that? Probably not, because I can't either. What is 100,000 light years? You know, the sun is far away, and that takes light eight minutes to get from us to the sun. But the sun's far away. 93 million miles is eight minutes, so what's, what's 100,000 years going to be? 100,000 light years. Good calculation. Should be a new homework problem for next semester. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Bill, millions, billions of galaxies, yes. 
each including hundreds of millions to billions of stars? So yes, we're, <laughs> we're, we're a little bit of nothing on, we're a little bit of nothing on one, on, the, on one of the littlest planets orbiting, you know, a relatively small star compared to some of the ones we've seen in just one of those galaxies. So we're nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what difference does your grade in astronomy class make then, right? In, in the whole the universe, yeah. There we try. Okay. All right. Well, we're talking about a couple, we talked about novae and supernovae before. Those are part of a class of stars called cataclysmic variables. So big explosion going on. Could be a supernova, could be a nova. And there's a couple other versions as well. They get really bright for a short period of time and then they fade off. And in the cases of like a nova, they might recur again in 50, 100 years. There are other types of stars where we see variations on a much shorter time scale. These are really variable stars. These are stars that are actually getting brighter and getting fainter over time frames that we can actually measure. You know, one of, the few, one of those few things in astronomy where we can actually imagine these time frames. In fact, very easy. We're talking about two different types of stars here. Uh, the ones called R.I. Lyrae stars vary with the period of about a day or so. We can imagine a day. I can't imagine 100,000 light years, but I can imagine a day. So they'll get brighter and fainter in about, about a half a day to a day or so. And Cepheids go from a little longer than that out to about 100 days. I can still imagine 100 days, right? 100 days ago, you didn't even know me, right? Well, most of you didn't know me. A few, a few of you were here last time, you knew me. But you know, 100 days ago, we haven't even been here 100 days yet. Almost, but not quite. So relative, I mean, time frames that we can actually measure. And these are intrinsic variables. These are stars that are really getting brighter and getting fainter and often because they're pulsing. If you recall the sun, we said the sun was in balance. Gravity was pulling it down and its pressure was pulling out. So it was in a state of complete balance and it didn't, so it wouldn't get brighter or fainter. There are some stars when they become giants and supergiants that go through a part of the HR diagram where there's instabilities. So they will produce a little bit too much energy in their core, they'll expand, the star will physically get bigger. Then that'll cool off the core and the less energy produced, so the star will get smaller and it will physically oscillate in size. So that's what's happening with these types of stars. They're really, they're really changing in brightness and it just has to do with that star. It doesn't have to do with some other star throwing material on its surface. It doesn't have to do with some other car, star going in front of it and blocking its light. These stars are really variable all by themselves and they're really pulsating. They get bigger, they get smaller. Uh, the difference is just the, the period. The RLIRAs are the very shortest periods. They're one type that is all very consistent in terms of how bright they are. Uh, the Cepheids have a big, bigger range in uh, brightness variations, but they're very close to each other on the HR diagram. The, RLIRAs are we're here and then the Cepheids come up one other section. So they come up in a couple different sections of the HR diagram. So it's slightly different as to where they, where they fall on the HR diagram. All right. Good. So here's, look here, we can look at one. And here is a RLIRA star at the top. Finish up here and then we'll take a break. So RLIRA star with a period of about half a day. They're all very consistent. Every single one of them, about half a day, plus or minus a little bit, but they're very, very consistent in how long they vary. About a half a day to a day. 
The interesting thing about them is that they're all, they're all the same, but they're all also the same brightness. Not the same brightness that we see, but intrinsically they're all almost exactly the same brightness. They fall uh, almost exactly the same spot on the HR diagram, and they all have the same luminosity. So we know exactly how bright each of these stars is. That's important for figuring out distances. Now we can determine distances to them. If we know how bright they really are, well boy, this variation makes them easy to find if you find them varying. You find the star that varies, you can identify it, watch its light curve, identify it as an RLI ray star. All of a sudden you know the distance to it. The other kind is a Cepheid. Cepheid variable has a much longer period. This one goes, what, about one, two, about three days? About three days period. They can go up to like 90, 100 days. But again, you can measure it. There's not quite a direct relation for this for determining distance, but there is a way to do it that you can determine the distance of that, you can determine the distance of that star. Here's an example of one, just giving you an idea of what it looks like. Looks like a little point of light, right? This is actually two pictures. If you notice, all these stars are double. That's because you've got two images just offset a little bit. And if you look at all of them, right, they're about the same brightness, about the same brightness, about the same brightness, except for this one here. This one's a lot brighter than that one. If you pick that Cepheid at the peak of its brightness, and you peak it, pick it at the lowest part, it might be twice as bright at the peak. So they're very easy to pick out. It's not just they're just getting a little bit brighter or a little bit fainter. They're really getting significantly brighter or fainter. And what we'll look at is on Monday we'll pick up here and look at using those to determine the distances. How we can use those to determine distances. So, Not by spectroscopic, but actually a, different, actually a slightly, different, slightly different method. So. Questions? Questions? No? We're ready for lab? No, no. Yeah, all right. There we go. Okay. Well, I'll go ahead and give you a break for a few minutes here, and I'll get the stuff ready for lab set up.